Welcome to ContenderCast, a leadership conversation centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading. It's Justin Hahnemann on the ContenderCast for shining a light on bright ideas. Today, we're in the consumer goods and retail world with one of my very best longtime friends, Michael Forges. Forges, it's so great to finally have you on the podcast. Yeah, Justin, I, you know, we've been putting this off for a while. We've been traveling around the world. We have a lot of remits on our on our professional agendas, but it's a real great pleasure to be with you today. Thanks for inviting me. It is so great. We've known each other probably, I mean, as long as some of my like close friends. And um, for those of you that don't know Michael, he is just a guy who has spent a lot of his career in the consumer space. So for those of you listening that are in consumer products, in consumer packaged goods, or working in retail, or it, you know, some of our guests have started businesses in this space or are thinking about it, you're going to love the conversation today because um, that's really where Michael's spending a lot of time. I am as well. I'm going to jump in on some of the conversation, but um, I think you're really going to enjoy the topics. We're going to cover where the industry has been, um, some of the challenges today with COVID-19, and then some of where we see potential you know, technology and some of the enablers going the next uh, year or two. So we're going to dive in here. And I think you guys are going to love this conversation. So Michael, let's start with this. First of all, let's before we even get to some of those topics, talk about how you even got into this kind of consumer industry. How did this, how did this start for you? Uh, well, there's the journey. You know, the, the journey and the reward is, is, as Jokes once said, or the journey is the reward. I, I don't know that any of us could imagine, you know, 20, 30 years, you know, into our careers that we would be where we would be. Unless, of course, you were a doctor or lawyer you <laughs> right. pretty clearly, right? Sure. I, um, I ended up in the consumer goods industry by a combination of, of good fortune and, and, um, and interest. I, since I was a kid, I was enamored by big, brand, big brands, you know, the things we saw in the grocery stores. And I grew up in the age of of Mad Men, and I, I wasn't old enough to be on Madison Avenue, but I remember the television commercials, and you know whether it was the Jolly Green Giant or or Kellogg's Rice Krispies or or the cookies that we used to eat, or you know the the, the Pepsi or the Coca Cola we used to drink. So the, the iconic brands that we grew up with, um, you know, they they held sway over us emotionally, and I thought that was very exciting. Now when I was in school. Everybody wanted to work for either Procter and Gamble or Coca-Cola or Unilever. I mean, that, that was the big win if you got out of school and you were going to go into business. I was actually studying law just now. Wow, I don't, wow, I don't think I knew that. Yeah, I, yeah, I was pre-law. I was pre-law, and then I decided into my junior, you know what? I don't think I want to spend the rest of my days in the stacks. And I might have been a great litigator, but I wasn't really what I considered a, a, a great scholar. Um, but I was, I think, inherently a marketeer. And I was very interested in big brands and how they communicated meaning and value to, to, to consumers, to all of us. And so that's where I ended up making my, my mark. I, I joined Revlon right out of college as the youngest district manager the company ever hired. And within 18 to 24 months, I was number two in the country. Wow. Excuse me, yeah, number two oh, in the country, number one in the Eastern Division. So somehow, you know. That was that was it. I, I I was I grew up in the cosmetics industry working for Revlon, and then I made my way from there to to Unilever and then Kraft General Foods. I did a stint at Tam Brands. I was at IRI, um, and then I did a startup in the loyalty marketing arena. I went into technology as that started to take hold, and and with all of that, now we are what 
30, 35 years into it. That's so funny. I don't think I've ever asked you that before. So that's actually kind of fun learning that about you. We actually met, I, I think you probably remember this. I was working at Coca-Cola at the time and you were working at one of the big uh, technology and consulting global providers. And we totally hit it off because you love to write and I love to write. And we we collaborated on a couple of projects. And then we were working together on uh, the Consumer Goods Technology Editorial Advisory Board and then the Executive Council, which you know we we should talk about the industry briefly and how the importance of these environments. And CGT is one that's been able to maintain, I'd say, uh, an environment of collaboration for consumer goods and retail over time. Yeah, well, I remember that meeting quite vividly, Justin. <laughs> I, I do too. In, it was a lounge of a hotel. Yes, in the Georgia Tech Atlanta. Hotel. Georgia Tech Hotel. Uh, yep. Yeah, your reputation was already well known to me, and people spoke quite highly of you. And I, and I have to admit, I and I'm not too intimidated by many people then or now, but I I really was like thinking, wow, this guy's a big shot. And uh, <laughs> little did and, you know. And, yeah. Well, <laughs> what I do remember is your warmth and generosity. And what I I think the reason why we both latched on was we saw that that our work was it wasn't just about the things that our company sold. We were we were really into what we were doing because we thought it could make a difference. Absolutely. And, and, totally. and the essence of the consumer products industry is just that, isn't it? How it how it takes care of us, how it, it enlivens our lives, how it provides the means to, to celebrate and so forth. I mean, all these great brands again. So you were with Coca-Cola and, and I had grown up in, in the in the beauty industry before. I ended up getting into several other sectors. And so I think we both understood that life is to be celebrated. Life is to be imbibed. If we're eating food, <laughs> it's about breaking bread and sharing good times. And what are you totally. up to? And, and we knew that. I think inherently we knew that the work we were doing was more than the sum of the things that our company sold. Yeah. And we, we could spend a whole hour just talking about the industry and the trends around like the industry organizations that we've both been involved with. And we'll save that for another podcast because that one would be super interesting and different. Um, but today, we're going to dive into where the industry has come from. And, and we've certainly seen a lot of things change uh, over time. And some things that like literally have not changed at all, almost to like... Oh, it's kind of funny, um, but you know you, you're in the middle of it, and now I, you know, I'm working for one big brand, but you're working with many. And so, what I thought would be interesting is share some of your perspectives of you know what's trending um, when you think about the consumer, you're thinking about the the retailer and the consumer goods company. Let's go pre pre COVID though. So, kind of coming into 2020, what were things looking like, and what's changed, and what stayed the same? Well, I, some of what we're about to discuss, I suppose. Was, you can't say it was inevitable, but, but, but consumers evolve and products evolve you know, through innovation and what have you, and uh, consumption patterns shift over time. But mostly what we've seen, I think, over the last, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 years have been subtle changes. The grocery store that we have right now isn't very much different from the one that we had 50 years ago. You know, we, we've tinkered at the margins. Our supply chain intelligence capabilities have gotten sharper. Uh, there was a time when we used to take cash tender literally out of a, out of a, a register, you know, the box, right? And now there's a thing called a scanner, but the scanner's been with us for decades, right? So that if you think about innovation in, in a pure sense, it's been, it's, it's been incremental over time. Where the real breakthrough happened, in my opinion, was, was in, in, in a digital universe. When the internet took hold, and more particularly when digital devices became, you know, invaluable to us. We carry them around 
you know, and they're as important to us as our, our identities, <laughs> I, I would say, right? Um, so what happened was the consumer really had the means, the technology in their hand, literally, to make decisions um, at the speed of thought. I could research a product now today and get all the information I need on my iPhone. I can, I can bargain for the price that I'm willing to pay for it. I can tell the, the vendor when it is I want to take possession of it. And if I don't like it, I'm going to send it right back. And by the way, I'm going to tell everybody why I didn't <laughs> right. like your product. That's so right? true. Feedback, yep. So essentially the industry is now in a process of reverse engineering, whereas major brands dictated the terms and with mass media, television, radio, and print, they literally told us what we needed and why. Now we are the ones who are in control. We get to decide the things that we need. And if we don't like them, we're going to tell everybody why. We have become de facto brand managers. So I, I think this is, this is probably the single most important thing that's happened in our industry is that consumers themselves now have more information readily available to make decisions that better uh, make a bigger and more important that is impact on their lives, their families, their environments, and so forth. We get to choose. Sure. And, you know, looking at the consumer goods world, I mean, a lot of the companies in the space are older, uh, have a lot of, I'd say, uh, legacy thinking, legacy technology, legacy methods. And then you have some of the upstarts that are making their way in the industry, many of whom we've actually had on the podcast. Uh, how are you seeing the industry move and transition with some of the trends you just talked about from the consumer perspective? Right. Well, <laughs> it used to be scale with everything. So if you were among you know, the Fortune 500, um, you had manufacturing uh, capability that could span the globe. You had distribution networks that would make it possible for you to ship your products anywhere on the planet. Uh, and, and you had, you know, you had innovation models and you had the best marketeers from the top, you know, most elite, you know, schools and, and on and on. So the, these companies that whose, whose workforces number in the tens of thousands um, have a storied, you know, uh, uh, history. They, they offer something at scale. And what's, what's changed, again, we go back to connected consumers and technology. Well, the same thing has happened in, 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 in innovation. The, the barriers to entry have been significantly reduced. It's possible to create a brand or a service and overnight be a sensation, whereas it took decades for companies to attain that. Let's give an Here's a great example. Gillette. Gillette invented, invented and, and continues to innovate um, at an unbelievable speed. Um, Gillette is in the business or thinks it's in the business or thought it was in the business <laughs> of, of, of engineering. <laughs> right. but, but what they missed, and they, they know it now, Procter & Gamble, of course, now owns Gillette. But what they missed was perhaps it's not about the razor blade. Perhaps it's about the shaving experience. And so – you know, some kid figures this out, right? He one day he leaves his house because he and he had a terrible shave and his skin is irritated. And that day he realizes he's got to go to the drugstore to get new shaving gear, uh, and and it's a pain, right? He's got to stand in line. He's got to go. He's got to find the gear to begin with. The, the whole transaction takes more time and effort. And he says to himself, "Well, I know I shave two or three times a week. I know I shave presumably so many times a month. That's so many months a year, and that means so many blades in an annual period." Why don't I just – well, that, that sounds like a subscription model. And, and now we know that story, right? That's right. the Dollar Shave Club that got bought out by, uh, by Unilever 
for a billion dollars less than 10 years after the idea. This is a kid who came up with, with a novel concept that was really quite simplistic when you think about it. So what are we saying here? We're saying that consumer goods companies who have lived on, on brand legacies for decades are now you know, as vulnerable as any other, any other sector to the opportunities inherent in a disruptive age. Technology plays a significant role in that, but there's also a great deal of, of um, uh, moxie, if you will, people who are innovating themselves, and they're saying, well, I, I, don't, I don't have to wait for somebody to create this. I'm going to create it, and they boldly go where no one's been before, and before you know it, you've got a billion-dollar brand just sprouting up out of your head. That, that, I think we, we've seen a lot of that, and I think we're going to see more examples of that in the coming years. Yeah, one of the things I've discovered for myself as well as in some of the individuals we've had on the podcast is just the barriers of entry have come down and the access to manufacturing has gotten easier. So for example... Um, you know, only five or 10 years ago, it would not have been easy to figure out how to have a mold made for a, a plastic device or a, a plastic um, saleable unit. But now, um, with the access online and all the different um, e channels, you can find manufacturers, you can find the people that handle getting all the shipping done, get it all out from overseas into your hands, prototyped, um, and, and so much faster. And those that was kind of the competitive advantage of a lot of those big manufacturers in, in the not-so-olden days. That's that's very true, Justin. In fact, you know, it, 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 if you look at it from the other side, from the retailer's side, that's true too, right? So, you know, the private labels that, that you know, 20, 30 years ago, we didn't think very much of off-label you know, white and black, white and black boxes, and in, in, in back then it was A and P. You know, these were considered considered inferior products to their national brand counterparts. Today, of course, some of the private labels, many of them, in fact, are as good. In some instances, actually superior to the national brands we grew up with. So the tables have been turned. I mean, no retailers now can, can marshal those same resources that you just named in every single category and that they, they make an offering with a national brand. They have a counterpart with a private label that provides a significant portion um, of their of their profit mix. So yes, the barriers are entry for, for anybody that can create a new product and for any retailer that wants to uh, riff on a product within a category or department. All of that now has essentially uh, given rise to the requirement for a reinvented business model. And that's where we are right now. It's actually quite exciting times when you think about it. Sure. And, you know, that uh, was a great segue. I was just going to ask you, I mean, as you look out across the landscape, are you seeing some legacy manufacturers, we'll call them, or legacy consumer goods companies that are moving faster than others or are adopting digital transformation, to use the buzzword, you know, in a, a faster way than others versus getting hung up in their own politics and policies? You know, um, one would have to answer that question with some sensitivity. <laughs> right. Um, Without I'll, using I'll any names. To, yeah, yeah. I'll take a stab at it, though. Um <laughs> There, there are pockets of innovation in every single company uh, of, of, of scale. The, the Fortune 500 get it. Um, what's interesting is, though, the degree to which that takes hold across the organization. So you could have um, an innovation team in any one of the companies that we've just talked about. The question isn't, isn't you know, the team. The question is the core DNA of the corporation right. itself. Right. So if you're a company that thinks it's in the business of making lots of stuff, there's going to be inertia. 
and there's going to be resistance to change. If you're a company that believes its purpose is to serve um, consumers with better products at a, at a price and, and with value and with meaning, a significant meaning, we can get into that in a little while, then, then it's more possible to imagine that that resistance falls away because everybody knows that the name of the game now is to create something astonishing, to, to literally be astonishing as opposed to what can we do to grow the base 6% this year over next year. <laughs> right. and which, or find new right? shelf space with trade dollars or whatnot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think we, we're, we're, we're moving from some of the tactics of the industry, which served us well for a good long period of time. You know, category management was about Jim Roy and how much space can I get against my competitor? Trade promotion was about can I undercut my competitor by giving a buy one, get one deal and therefore load the pantry? Well, you know, that's not it anymore. It's going to take a lot more to satisfy a consumer today. And, and therefore, you're going to have to be on your toes every single day inventing not just a flanking brand to squeeze out your competition, but a valuable product that people want to come back for. Sure. It's interesting, too. You know, I'm starting to see especially retailers now being more open to adopting new brands or entrant brands versus you know sticking sticking with the legacy companies in their traditional trade um, spend or or shelf spend and, and and you're starting to see that in the new types of products and and um, offerings that you see like in grocery and in retail. Um, well, let me ask you this. So you know transitioning a bit. So and <clears throat> we're off and running in 2020, and then this virus hits and everything comes to a stop. Um, what are some of the things that you think would be are, are going to change uh, versus the path that we were on post COVID? Let's call it. Well, and I, 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 for all the banner, this is this is a, a very sensitive conversation, right? Um, there's the the world is um, simultaneously on the move and taking a deep breath and pause, and um, we're not precisely sure how what this looks like at the end what we know most immediately is that we have to use great care um in the in the daily course of our lives and right so we all know right social distancing i mean a month ago nobody really even knew that that concept (laughs) now it's on everybody's lips exactly and uh there are questions about whether it's four feet or six feet apart so now we have to think about that and um you know, just two weeks ago, I, all right, I said, I, I'll only go to the grocery store once a week. Now it's maybe every two weeks. And when I go, I, I, I have to wait on a long line because we're all quite up at six feet, just intervals outside. And then, and then when we walk in the aisles of the store, they're in one direction or you can't go bi-directional anymore. And, and there are barricades in front of the, the checkouts because we're quaying on, on a horizontal plane as opposed to a scrum you know, dozens of shopping carts all trying to find the best place to make their transaction go by quickly. All of this is shifted overnight. Now, it, it, notwithstanding the, the, what, what that, why that's necessary, we all understand that right now. So we're trying to bend the curve by, by, um, by trying to, to slow the, the acquisition of the virus and give our, our, um, our hospitals a chance to catch up and our, and our scientists a chance to perhaps invent a vaccine and as quickly as they might, as they, as they possibly can. But here's what I'm going to say about all this. There's no way we don't end up different 
in 18 months. Our, it, we're habitual and, and shopping groceries <laughs> right. is a habitual thing. When you go to a grocery store on average 2.4 times a week, well, now you're only going to go once a week, maybe once every two weeks, perhaps not even every for, for three weeks. So at, at the end of all this, a year, a year and a half from now, I think what's going to happen is people are going to their expectations of the shopping experience are going to shift. I'm no longer going to want to wait online. I'm exhausted. And I'm probably not going to want to go through uh, the, the typical cash register anymore. I'm exhausted. And by the way, that's probably not even safe for me, or maybe it's not safe. It's never going to be safe again. So the industry in the short term is adapting to these requirements. And my guess is that in, in you know, 12, 18, 24 months, some of those 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 adaptations are going to take hold and they're not going to just be short term. They're going to be part of our everyday. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it'll be interesting to see, you know, after 9-11, we, you know, you hear this on the news, right? So, you know, everyone reacted a different way. And then over time, you know, bounced back and kind of found their way through the new normal. Um, and I, I do think that it'll be interesting to see how long it takes for some normal to come back. You know, we could dive into all of the pro- prognostication that we see on the news every night, but I mean, it is interesting too. Everything down to you were just in Italy, right? I mean, you you were living in Venice and and you can actually see clear water now there. <laughs> right? Yeah, There's just crazy you know, changes going on. It, it, it's interesting you should raise that up. So I I got back to the United States a little over a month ago, but I was in Venice, Italy, uh literally and I was supposed to be there uh, in 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 Europe for for four months, and then I was going to spend some time in South Africa, and I had a few other places I, I had on my calendar. Um, I, I literally out my me and my wife outran for the for the moment that that existed outran the virus. We we left Italy as it was taking hold, and then we got to the UK, and people were starting to talk about it, but consciousness hadn't reached a fever pitch yet. And then we came to the States, and it was remarkable when we landed in the US. Nobody, they saw my passport, the biometrics tell you where I came from and where I was, and and yet nobody stopped me at the border. No one asked me where I went or how I'm feeling, and um, I showed up with a fever. No one tracked me coming in, and nobody was tracking me as I was moving around, which, by the way, I did not do. I went into seclusion my wife and I for two weeks because we, we were in an environment where this was considered a risk. Um, but as I was telling my friends and my family about our experience and I was trying to say to them simultaneous, this is coming, you know, this is coming to the United States. Like right now, it's like going to be here in a week, you're going to be in lockdown. And everybody thought I was being hyperbolic. And, and, and now of course, I, my friends and family are calling us. I'm so glad you told me to go out and get some things for the, from the grocery store and to prepare my house and, you know, and so forth, because I had no idea. And I said, well, I'm, I wasn't particularly prescient. I was just ahead of it. So what does that tell me now? What does that mean 12 months from now? It's anybody's guess, but you know, you use the analogy you were, you were spoken about 9-11 a moment ago, and we have to think back on what happened, right? Everything changed for flying. We, right. we had to go through, you know, deep restaurants were still you know. open. Parts of the world had no impact. You know, it was like a non, not a non-event, but a lot of other countries, it was a lesser event, if any. Right? 
Well, it was impactful in a lot of ways. Security, at the very least, picked up, right? Sure. But, but what were some of the innovations that came out of that, Justin? The TSA, TSA you know, yeah. made it possible for you to, if you were willing and able and had you wanted to spend a few bucks, you could go through a TSA for quick security scan. And they should charge a lot line. more money for that, by the way. <laughs> probably, I think they could make. Probably. They could charge five hundred dollars, and we, they could. It, and they'd have a lot of money rolling in. But anyway, sorry, different topic for a different day. Well, <laughs> my point was, though, that so security innovations took hold. There was an immediate need. And then and then there was a, a rationale for can we alleviate some of the pressure here? You know, we're, we're business people who do this every day for a living. You got, you know, folks like yourself and myself. Can we get through that a little bit more quickly versus those who may travel only a couple, three times a year if they travel that often? Right. So we, we have those innovations and I dare say that's what's going to happen here, right? So we, the industry has been experimenting with click and collect and frictionless commerce, right? We talk, we look at Amazon Go, and everybody saw that as a lab experiment, you know, two years ago. But um, direct to consumer, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, lockers and so forth. All of these innovations, I predict, are going to take hold much more fast, much more quickly, and with impact quite significant. Uh, over the next 12 to 24 months, I, I, I'm going to stick my head over a limb here and tell you that I believe that you will not see a checkout in, in three years. That'll all be gone for the most part. We will, you'll walk in a store and you're just going to walk right out. Your iPhone or whatever technology would have evolved by then will make it possible for you to be seen and acknowledged. And you won't take out a credit card and you won't take out cash if you don't want to anyway. And you'll walk in and you'll walk out. And, and can you imagine what the world looks like under those conditions and what the impact for manufacturers and retailers will be? It's going to be astonishing. Wow. Well, um, I, I love it. And I, I, I love that you hit on some of the, the new tech that's coming. Um, as we look out over the next, let's, let's get, you know, we've, we've hit on COVID. But it, let's, let's look out beyond that. Um, in the consumer goods space, what would be two or three things you think that manufacturers need to be thinking about? And let's also not forget about some of the new entrants, the startups in the con- consumer goods entry, um, industry, what they should be thinking about. What would be your thoughts there as we wrap up today? Well, we were, we were, I alluded to this a, a few minutes ago, but we, we were looking at what's what many call the fourth industrial revolution. So we, we have run through a period of roughly 100 years where the name of the game was to make things as, as quickly as we could, as efficiently as we could for as many who would buy these things and, and have them coming back for more. And that model was extremely um, useful. I put a lot of people to work. It satisfied a lot of innate desire. Uh, we raised uh, living standards we and by living standards, not just economical uh, economics, but but you know food and clothing and shelter. All of these things were made possible by our capacity for mass manufacturing. Now we're at a point right now where we probably make more than we need, and then the question is, well, what is it exactly do we need? And I think I think this period that we're going through right now, if there's an upside, and I'd, I'm an optimist, so I think there is. If there's an upside to what we're seeing right now, there's going to be a higher degree of consciousness. You know, consumers were already looking at, um, in, uh, you know, sustainability and the environment, uh, corporate welfare and, and, and care, you know, fair wage and fair trade. 
and what have you. And there, we were making, beginning with many of us, are making judgments about the companies that serve us. Are they doing so in an efficacious manner? I, I think consciousness is raising for that. And I think it's going to be raised significantly um, during and after this period we're in right now. Um, I, I think that brands are going to have to start thinking about what meaning they have beyond their utility. Um, uh, and 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 how do they serve their purpose? And that consciousness has already been. And we talk about purpose-driven companies now for a while. It's been on everybody's mind. But there's going to be more inherent altruism, uh, both as a requirement for brand eff- efficacy, but but also because I think corporations and senior executives and the rank and file are all coming to terms with the truth, which is, why am I doing this in the first place? What what value am I bringing to the world, to my family, to my community? And I, I, I'd like to believe that when we come through the other side of the pandemic, people's hearts and minds will, will come alive in a new age with a new spirit and intention. I, you and I met under, on, you know, not in the same, for that reason, but we, we latched on, as I said earlier, because we, we saw that what we did could mean something. And the communities that we are a part of, we're, we're all the CGT's executive council, the league of leaders, you know, the, the, uh, the consumer goods forum. These are associations and institutions who, who have, who have helped to shape the work that we do and where we contribute, we try to make a difference by being informed and helping our colleagues. We take off our hats, our competitive hats, as it were, and we sit down and we talk about how we can do what we do um, more more efficiently and, and we create better value for shoppers and consumers and our and our customers and what have you. And and I think that's the root of it. I think that's going to happen in our industry. I see it already happening with shoppers generally. And and so I'm, I'm we're all cautiously walking the, you know, walking the path right now, hoping that we can, you know, forestall um, getting sick and, 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 or, you know, bringing this to somebody else, right. Give us a chance to catch our breath and catch up Uh, at the end of it though. I think the environment for business and the environment for shoppers is going to look very different. And I'm hopeful for what that difference portends. Sure. Yeah. I I love that. And I think that covers so many segments and, you know, I, I think about some of the, the folks that we've had on this podcast that are starting a new beverage line and they've they've made it into a couple of stores or they've gotten into a couple of chains or they're getting tests and and whatnot in different markets um, as they're thinking about you know their path to growth, uh, what would be one or two things they should be thinking about from a um, consumer engagement perspective? Well, you know if you again, if you go back to the roots of our industry, um, I'll just talk about consumer packaged goods. Many of the brands that are, are on the shelves now, most of them are in the hands of the, a, a half a dozen of the majors. Um, and we talked about it, We named a few of those, right? They were acquired over generations. But if you trace the roots of, of how those brands came into being, there are some fantastic stories um, of a, a adaptation through the utilization of technology in a novel way that didn't occur to anybody. Uh, AAG Birdseye, frozen vegetables, was really born of the technology that was being used on the docks to fresh flash freeze fish that, that came in from the sea, right? So that you could preserve it before, you know, long enough that it would get to market. And someone said, well, I can do that with vegetables. And, and so we locked in nutrients into vegetables that you, you, would, you wouldn't see in one part of the country because by the time it would get from one place to the next, it would have expired. So it, my point is this. I mean, 
the roots of our industry may not come from scale. They're going to come from, from people that are committed to the project. And, and so when we see these, these small companies coming up, that's where we were. That's how we started. You know, people who had a, an idea, they were inspired. They thought they could do something that would make a difference uh, for the environment, for for fair wage and fair trade. I mean, products that have been invented over time and inherently had that going for them. And I think that I think that if I could if I could wish anything that more people, particularly younger folks who were interested in, in things like health and nutrition and, and wellness and well-being, would combine those interests with the products that would serve such a purpose. And and I and I think that's going to be very exciting to see how that comes around the corner in the next several years. I love it. Well, dude, I think that that um, just as a nice way to cap off the conversation, Michael, finally, we got together on the podcast. How awesome is this? I, I love your your thinking. I love your insights. You always have like this next step level of thinking, if that makes sense. I always find our conversation so intellectual and um, I can't wait to have you back on uh, as we get into some new trends. Maybe later this year, um, we could get you back on and, and, and talk about uh, where some of the industry is heading. And um, I just appreciate you being on the podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me, Justin. Um, we do go a ways back. We have a lot of friends in this industry we've been working with. I consider it a real honor to have been invited today. And I'd, I'd be delighted to come back uh, at any time that you'd like. Well, we're going to make it happen. The Contender Cast is sponsored by Henderson Shapiro Peck. You can download additional Contender Cast episodes directly via the Apple iTunes App Store, the Google Play Store, Spotify, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the Contender Cast, connect with us at contenderbrands.com. This is Brian Benson reminding you that every winner started as a contender. <laughs>